events, circumstances that bring people together. So do you remember back in 2009 when that U.S. Airways flight landed in the Hudson River? They made a movie about it, Sully. Well, every year there's a reunion for survivors and responders. Every year. That event created a bond between these people. Some things just bring people together. It could be something tragic. It could be something triumphant. It could be shared suffering or it could be shared fun. Point is, we are brought together by certain things. Our bonds as creatures made in the image of God are joined together by certain events and we become, by virtue of our joint participation in these things, not just a a group of people that happen to be in the same place at the same time, bouncing off of one another like billiard balls, but instead we become us, a family. Why am I talking about this? Because today what I want to persuade you of is that the Lord's Supper is exactly just such an event. I want to convince you that the Lord's Supper is not an individual devotional moment in between you and the Lord, but an event designed by God to strengthen and protect the unity God's given to us as a church. So if you're a Christian this morning, this message is for you. Why do you celebrate the Lord's Supper? What does it signify? How do you partake rightly? What blessings does God have in store for you in this meal that we partake of every week? And if you're a non-Christian, this message is for you. While it would be wrong for you to partake of the Lord's Supper today, I want you to know that God invites you into his family through his son. And you can become a child of God and thus welcome at this feast that he's given to his children. And today you're going to learn how. So would you open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2. So if you open up your Bible and you see the New Testament, you're going to go forward several books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. You're going to get to Corinthians. And you're going to go to chapter 11 and you're going to go to verse 2. I want to give you just a bit of context. Chapter 11 through the end of 14 is a new section in Corinthians that is all about the church gathered together. Okay? The first half of 11 is how men and women relate to one another in the church. Today is the Lord's Supper. And then 12 through 14 is spiritual gifts. And the thing that binds all this together is it's about the church gathered. Turns out God really cares about what churches do when they worship. And so in 11.2, Paul begins with a compliment Now I commend you, he says, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. 
So to a degree, the Corinthian church is doing what pleases God when they come together. However, comma, that is not the case when it comes to the Lord's Supper. Look at 17 through 19. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. What we have here is division. When you come together, when you come together, which by the way, That phrase is just used throughout our text this morning. When you come together, 17 and 18. When you come together, 20. When you come together, 33. This is all about the church gathered. And it's a good reminder for us, just before we even talk about anything this morning, churches gather for worship. And this is important to say in our day when you can do everything online. You can buy your groceries online. You can find a spouse online. How strange. But it happens. But church, church is not online. Church is physical. Church is flesh and blood. Church is people beside you, behind you, in front of you. You hear their voices. You see their smiles. You know if they're crying. There's no substitute. There's no online. But this church, when they gather for worship, there is a big problem. I do not commend you, Paul says. Why? Because there's division in the church. For in the first place, when you gather together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. This isn't the first time we've heard about divisions in this lovely little church in Corinth. Chapter 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it's been reported to be my Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Now, the reason for the division in chapter 1 and the reason for the division in chapter 11 are different. But the result is the same. God's people are at odds with one another. And this is terrible. It, it, it is terrible to experience. If you've ever been a part of a church experiencing divisiveness, you know it. And it's a terrible witness to the world, the outside world. It says that we are not unified in Christ, but we actually are. It's just painful. But God does use it. Pick up halfway through 18. And I believe it in part. In other words, I believe the reports about this division. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. Here's the deal. Not everyone who professes to be a Christian has genuine saving faith. There are some who say, I'm a Christian... But at the end of the day, they actually don't have a real relationship with Jesus. And one of the ways that becomes clear is by how they act. So if they can't reconcile with their brothers or sisters in Christ, if they can't 
humble themselves and say, you know what? I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. If they say and do mean things and never make it right, what's going on is that the state of their heart is being revealed. Those who belong to Christ just aren't characterized by behavior like that. Those who are Christ's are peacemakers, not peacebreakers. So there's division in the church. It is terribly painful. But it can have a way of revealing who is a genuine believer or who is not. Well, what's the specific reason for the division here? Well, in some churches, division takes place over the color of the carpet. In others, it's the paint on the walls. In some, it's the Sunday school teacher who refuses to relinquish her spot. These are my two-year-olds, right? You're like, why would anybody hold on to the two-year-olds forever? I don't know, but it happens. What was it here? Selfish observance of the Lord's Supper. Pick up in 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now, it, it is the Lord's Supper, okay? But what's happening is that they're botching it so bad that Paul says, I, I, I know you're calling it the Lord's Supper, but it's not the Lord's Supper. Because what you're doing is such a far cry from what the Lord's Supper is. So what's happening? For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. Now, in this setting, the church likely gathered for a meal along with their celebration of the bread and the cup. And this is similar to what Christ did on the last Passover with his disciples. So if you just remember, they gathered for the Passover, they ate the Passover meal, and then Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. So the Corinthians are doing something similar. By the way, this doesn't mean that you have to have a meal with the Lord's Supper although we'd certainly be free to. The essential elements of the Lord's Supper are the bread and the cup. That's what Jesus instituted. So so they're gathering for worship. They're celebrating the Lord's Supper with a meal. It's probably like a potluck where everybody's bringing a bunch of food, but do you know what's happening? Church members who were rich were eating and drinking like kings. And church members who were poor didn't even have enough to eat. The rich went first and like devastated the table. They're like all of your little ones that we keep with you for that very reason. But the rich were going first and they were eating so much that they were gluttonous. What's worse, church members who were rich took so much wine that not only did the poor not have any wine, the rich were trashed. Now, be clear. In the secular world at this time, there was a massive distinction between the rich and the poor, sociologically, the haves and the have-nots. But in every age, what the gospel does is it takes our social hierarchies. It takes our social conventions that tend to separate us, and it throws them in the trash. And it says, you are all brothers and sisters. You are all equal. You are all one in Christ. In in fact, in chapter 10, talking about the Lord's Supper, Paul says, the bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? 
Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. You see, the Lord's Supper is actually a display of our unity as a church. It's a display of the fact that black or white, rich or poor, male or female, we are all one in Jesus Christ. Which is why it is so heinous that the halves of the Corinthians are not sharing with their brothers and sisters who are have-nots. They're actually using their social status to selfishly take their fill more than their fill, and they're not giving a rip that they're not leaving enough for those without social status to have anything. Of course there's division in the church. And Paul is ripped. Verse 22, what? Exclamation point. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Their actions are totally contrary to the meaning and significance of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a display of the gospel. The unity it creates, we who are many are one. And the selfless sacrifice of Christ, he who is rich, richer than anybody, he did not look out for himself. No, he looked out for the spiritually poor, for all of us, that we might be saved. And so Paul thinks that we need a little reminder here about what the Lord's Supper is really about. Pick up in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, maybe you've heard those words or phrases a hundred times. It's really no matter. Slow down with me and let God's word encourage you. When we partake of the bread and the cup in the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? We are remembering his sacrifice. Do this in remembrance of me, verse 24. We are remembering his sacrifice. The bread that we break, which forgive me, due to our germ sensibilities, we actually break it ahead of time for you. There's no problem with that. But it does weaken the symbolism some. The bread that we break is representative of the body of Christ that was broken on the cross. Likewise, the cup that we drink is representative of the blood of Christ that was spilt on the cross. Now, contrary to Roman Catholicism, the bread and the cup do not become the body and blood of our Lord, nor do they maintain any justifying grace. And contrary to Lutheranism, Christ's body is not in, with, or under the elements. 
Christ's body or blood is not present in these elements at all. These elements are representative. They are symbolic of his sacrifice. His sacrifice. Why did he do this? Why did he give his body to be broken? Why did he give his blood to be shed? He did it for you. Did you notice those two ridiculously small words in verse 24? This is my body, which is for you. Christ gave himself for you, believer. Christ gave himself for your sin, believer. How appropriate is it that he celebrated the Lord's Supper and he instituted it at the Passover? The Passover meal was a meal of remembrance. Israel remembered her slavery in Egypt, how she was in bondage and God saved her through the death of a Passover lamb. Every time an Israelite ate that Passover meal, he remembered, I was a slave, but God saved me through the blood of the lamb. And that's what he did for us, church. We were slaves. Slaves to sin. And the penalty of sin is death. Judgment, condemnation, hell. And yet God has done the most incredible thing. He did not leave us in our sin. He did not condemn us for our sin. He sent his son to save us from our sin by taking the punishment of our sin upon himself. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have turned astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53. This is what we remember in the Lord's Supper. Non-Christian. This is the cornerstone of our faith. Not the Lord's Supper, but what the Lord's Supper represents. This is why we come to church every Sunday morning. This is why we pray. This is why we sing. Because God gave His Son for us. 
Because God loved us and made us his own because we deserved hell. But we're going to heaven because he gave us Jesus. And if you're here this morning as a non-Christian, I have the best news in the world for you. God offers to do the same for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You can be forgiven of your sin. You can become part of the family of God. You can soon join us at this table and celebrate with us all that it represents if you will turn from your sin And believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's wonderfully simple. If you have questions about what it means to become a Christian. How it works. What does it look like? Please find me after the service. Or just talk to a member of Redeeming Grace Church. They will help you. Now. Why this explanation of the Lord's Supper In this section. (laughs) It's because the Corinthian celebration of it. Is contrary to what it's all about. Think about it. Jesus selfless sacrifice. Brings us together as a family around the table. But the Corinthians selfish celebration of it. Is splintering and disunifying the family. Totally unacceptable. Paul blows the whistle. Unsportsmanlike conduct. Everybody's out of the pool. You've got to handle this. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What's the idea here? Don't partake in an unworthy manner. He who partakes in an unworthy manner is guilty. You don't want to partake in an unworthy manner because then you're sinning. So, well, then the question is, well, what does it look like to partake in an unworthy manner? That's a good question. I actually want to pause on that for just a second. Because I think this verse is often not considered in its context. What do you think it means to not partake in a worthy manner? My guess is that you think it means eating and drinking cup and the bread if you're not doing well in Jesus. Maybe you've sinned this week. Maybe you've sinned big time this week. So, hey, I I can't partake of the table. I've sinned. That would be eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. Well, you're partly right. It is about unrepentant sin, but it's about sinning against your brothers and sisters. Partaking in an unworthy manner is eating and drinking while acting in some way that is harmful to the unity and harmony of the church. That is what Paul is lambasting them for. They are coming to the Lord's table, a symbol of Christ's selfless sacrifice and the unity of the church, and they're coming to his table divided. That is heinous. That's why Jesus said things like, if you go to offer your gift on the altar, 
and you recognize that you and your brother in Christ aren't right, you actually need to leave your gift at the altar. You need to first go and be reconciled to your brother, and then you come and offer your gift at the altar. To partake in an unworthy manner is to partake despite actions and attitudes that are harmful to your brothers and sisters in Christ, specifically the ones in this room. So what should you do? Verse 28. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Take stock. Take a minute. Look around. Think. Are my actions and attitudes such that promote the unity and harmony in the church? Think. Am I unreconciled to a brother or a sister? Think, am I gossiping or or slandering or, or backbiting or harboring ill will? How important is this, you ask? I'm glad you asked. Very important, I would say. Verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, a couple of things. What does it mean to discern the body? Let me tell you, it has nothing to do with the elements, the bread and the cup. This is not about discerning the body of Christ in the bread and the cup. This has everything to do with the body of Christ in the seats beside you. This has to do with the body of Christ to your right and to your left. To eat and drink without discerning the body is to eat and drink without taking stock of your brothers and sisters and your actions and your attitudes concerning them. This is exactly what the Corinthians were doing, coming to the table, happily celebrating what Jesus had done for them while flagrantly disregarding their brothers. And it is so serious to the Lord. To do this is to drink judgment on yourself. Now, what kind of a judgment is it? It is not a judgment of damnation. It is not eternal judgment hell. It is disciplinary judgment of believers. Why do I say it's not eternal judgment? I say that because of verse 32. Verse 32 says, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. Why? So that we may not be condemned along with the world. This judgment is discipline from the Lord. It's it's not condemnation from the Lord. Those are two different things. The Lord's discipline of believers is from his hand, and it's designed to foster our obedience to him. Just like parents discipline their children. Parents, you discipline your children to foster their obedience. That, friends, is what God does for us. He disciplines us to drive out our foolishness. But this discipline is serious. Just because it's not eternal condemnation, I wouldn't wink at this. 
This is frightful. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. This is serious. God has disciplined some in this congregation, the Corinthians, with weakness, illness, and even death. Now be clear for just a second. I do want you to know, just because you're ill or sick, that does not necessarily mean that this is discipline from the Lord for your sin. You need to hear that. It does not necessarily mean that, but it may mean that. It did here. It did for them. The Lord is serious about this. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. In other words, if we, if we took stock, like I'm encouraging us to do, if we took stock to ensure that our actions and our attitudes are promoting the unity and harmony of the church, we won't experience this painful discipline ourselves. So brothers and sisters, my exhortation to you is... Let's take our relationships in this room seriously. That's the final exhortation from Paul, beginning in verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it won't be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give direction when I come. Don't you wish you could have been there for that? Well, what's the bottom line? When you come together and you celebrate the Lord's Supper, make sure you're doing so in a way that is not divisive. Repent of your selfishness. Repent of using your social status to belittle your brothers. Repent of your blatant lack of concern for your brothers. Repent, Paul says, and love each other. Well, what should we do with this? We are not in exactly the same situation that the Corinthians were, and I praise God for that. But how should we apply these truths so that we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a way that's a blessing and in a way that's a joy and in a way that honors our great God and Savior Jesus Christ? I got five ways for you that I want you to look, okay? And I'm indebted to the commentator John Hammett for this basic idea of these looks, Five looks I want you to consider. Number one, I want you to look within at yourself. So I just want to take a step back and I want to remind you of a couple of things. Let's just level set because I don't expect we're all on exactly the same page here in relation to who should partake of the table. When you look at yourself and you ask, are there reasons why I shouldn't partake of the table? Clearly there are some reasons here that Paul lays out of why you shouldn't partake in the table. So as you think about yourself, what are reasons why you shouldn't partake in the Lord's table? Let me give you three. Number one, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you should not partake of the table. Okay? Number two, if you haven't been baptized, you shouldn't partake in the table. Baptism is the entry marker into the church, and the Lord's Supper is the continuing 
marker in the life of the church. So baptism comes before the Lord's Supper. And you shouldn't partake of the supper before you've been baptized. And let me give you a caveat. Baptism in the Roman Catholic Church is not baptism. So if you were baptized as a Roman Catholic, you haven't been baptized because there's a different gospel message in the Roman Catholic Church. And then number three. So number one, if you're not a believer, you shouldn't partake. Number two, if you haven't been baptized, you shouldn't partake. Number three, if you're living in unrepentant sin, you shouldn't partake. Now, this text, please listen to me, this text is about sin against your brothers and sisters. That makes, if you're living in unrepentant sin in relation to your brothers and sisters, you should not partake. But by implication, it makes sense that other sin would be included as well. So if you're living in unrepentant sin, I would encourage you not to partake in the table, but let me caveat that, and it's a big caveat. This table is for sinners. This table is for sinners. Come to this table, brother and sister, if you've had a bad week, okay? Come to this table if you've had a really bad week. Come to this table. This table is all about our need of grace and Christ's sacrifice to meet that need. The sin that should keep you from this table is the sin that you're unwilling to repent of. Have you had a bad week? Do you want to turn from it? Then come. Are you sideways with your brothers or sisters? Are you willing to do all that you can to live at peace with your brothers and sisters and to reconcile? Then come. Are you discouraged at how you continue to sin? I am. But are you wanting to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ? Then come. This is not a table for those who are varsity. This is a table for those who are his. And you are his if you are in him. So if you have high-handed sin and you know it and you will not repent then don't come. But everybody else, all of you sinners and strugglers out there like me, come feed upon the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and be reminded that He shed His blood and He allowed His body to be broken for you. Praise God. Come to this table and be fed and be encouraged. Don't keep yourself from it if you're not doing well. So number one, look in, look within at yourself. Number two, look around at your brothers and sisters. Look around at your brothers and sisters. This is not just a meal between you and the Lord. This meal is horizontal. This, by the way, is why we don't take it in home group or at weddings because it's a corporate matter. When you come together, Paul says, this is something to be done when the church gathers and we are with one another when you come together. So think about how you are relating to your brothers and sisters. And please know this is not just about not being mad. I think sometimes I'm guilty of only giving one major illustration. Are you sideways with your brother or sister? 
By the way, why do I say that? Because sometimes we get that way. But it's not only that we want to avoid an unreconciled conflict. That would be on the negative side of things. Brothers and sisters, we have so many positive obligations towards one another. Are you considering the obligations that you have for your brothers and sisters? Obligations to bear with one another in love. To forbear one another. To exhort one another. To disciple one another. To weep with one another. To rejoice with one another. To pray for one another, to teach one another, to laugh with one another, to cry with one another. You have positive obligations as covenant members in one another's lives to bear one another up, to hold each other's arms as we together advance and move towards the celestial city. This is not just about you and the Lord. This is about you and your brothers and sisters and the obligation that you have to them, to be one with them. And to love them and serve them. And to be loved and to be served by them. Are you considering your brothers and sisters as you come to this table? Look within. Look around. And then look back. Look back at what Christ has done. Every week when we come to this table, I hope that you look back at what Christ has done. At the fact that you are saved not because of your righteousness, but because the righteousness of Christ has been given to you by faith. I hope that you look back and remember that Jesus Christ's body and blood was shed for you. And you are in him because he gave himself for you. Look back. And then look ahead. Did you hear what the text said? We do. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, looking back, until he comes, looking ahead. Jesus Christ is coming back. And this meal that we have with one another is a foretaste of a greater meal that we will have with one another in the new heavens and the new earth. And it will be the most rocking and righteous party you could ever imagine with our brother and Savior and lover, Jesus Christ, at the center of it all. And us together, feasting with joy like we've never feasted before. And every time you eat this, I want you to think about that. That's where you're going with everybody else. We're going to spend eternity together worshiping the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. So we look ahead. And we also look outward. This is a proclamation of the Lord's death. Until he comes. The Lord's Supper is proclamation of the gospel. It is a beautiful thing, trust me parents, for your kiddos to see you coming forward and partaking. Because it reminds them even visibly. That you are of the company of the redeemed. 
and of the offer that they have to become a part of the company of the redeemed. It's a visible demonstration to non-Christians when we Christians are coming forward to the table that we are part of the company of the redeemed and we will be with the Savior. Non-Christian, we want you to be there with us as well. And you can be. So this is evangelism as we partake of this table every week. Sometimes some Christians say, shouldn't you just not fence the table and let everyone come? No, that would be unloving and unkind to everyone in this room who's not a Christian. It would be me telling you, you're a, li- it'd be me telling you a lie. That you're right with God and that you'll be with him in the feast of heaven when you won't be. Unless you turn from your sin and trust in him. And so this is proclamation. And so, brothers and sisters, look within at yourself. Look around at your brothers and sisters. Look back at what Christ has done. Look ahead. Christ will come back. And look outward and remember that this is beautiful and wonderful proclamation of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We are, at times, a dull people. And so you have given to us very plain and straightforward ways wherein we can be instructed and reminded and worship. And you do so through your table. And we thank you for it today especially as we've been reflecting on its significance. We ask your blessing on our service and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.